Okay, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. I know there's um, a few people that still aren't here, but um, we'll go ahead and get started and let people begin to trickle in. We've got some really good stuff to cover tonight. So, how's everybody doing? Good. Hump day. So, we're almost through. Good. All right, well, why don't we um, place ourselves in the presence of our loving God and ask Him to wake us up and be attentive to receive all that He intends. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good and gracious God, we are so grateful to you for all that you've given us, our lives, our family, our friends, our, our loves, our children, our, all, all the great gifts that you've given to us. Lord, we are, we are so grateful. Um, Lord, we ask that um, as we ponder the nature and person of your son, that we come to know him and love him as you call us to, and that we are seized, really compelled um, to delve more deeply into his personal life and come to know him as the friend that he's meant to be to us all. And I ask this as I ask all things through Christ, Son, and Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So somebody said to me today, I think it was one of my team members, there was a lot to read for tonight. And there was a lot to read because tonight is, is a, it's, it's what it's all about, right? It's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, and so there was one question that I kind of wanted to um, address that I didn't get to last time that somebody wrote down. And um, so do we have any more of those yellow strips, you guys, team members? Are there any in that thing there? That you have here. So maybe you can see what we have, because I'd like you guys to have them, because if you ever have questions, I'd like you to be able to write them down and then leave them on the table for us. So this is one of the questions. Do only confirmed Catholics cross themselves before and after a prayer? And so no, you can, anybody can cross themselves. Certainly it is a sign of being Catholic, um, but there's no like obstacle to you making the sign of the cross if, you're, if you haven't been confirmed Catholic. Even if you haven't been baptized, you can you can do that. It's not um, it's not just for people who have been baptized Catholic. It is the sign of our faith, right? So, what are we doing when we're saying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? We're, we're reminding ourselves that we believe in a God who is a communion of persons, a communion of love. That He is Trinity, right? And so that's what we're doing. It's also the sign of the cross, right? Right cross for me is the cross, that's what he did for us. So the sign of the cross can be a prayer in and of itself if we allow for it, because it really speaks to us about what we believe. Now when we go into the church, this is also something anybody can do. You can dip your fingers in holy water and do the sign of the cross. Now that's a reminder of our baptism. So if you haven't been baptized yet, it's maybe a thought forward to your baptism. Um, but there's nothing there's nothing that keeps you from doing the sign of the cross with holy water. You see little kids doing it, right? Their parents are teaching them how to do it um, when they come into the church. And so certainly, um, the holy water is a, what we would call a sacramental. So there is, um, it is a sign of something holy. And so there is, um, there is a participation in the grace of, of the Lord present there. So it's not, it's not a sacrament, but it is a sacramental. So it points towards something um, and really images something that is holy. For example, our baptism. 
of what Christ did for us, um, the other sacraments, our belief in the Trinitarian God. So all of those things. Um, so it's a great question. Um, any other questions before we go into the person of Christ that anybody would like to raise as you've been reading, as we've been talking about all the different um, important subjects thus far? been baptized in another Christian denomination. Um, and so if you come to become Catholic, we don't rebaptize you. You are already a member of the body of Christ. And that's and there are a couple of exceptions to that. So what we say is that if your baptism was in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, and with water, if form and matter were present, then in fact we believe that it was a baptism. Um, that Christ desires for us. And so it is the sacrament of unity. So any Christian denomination that baptizes in the way we baptize and desires and means to baptize, we accept that baptism. Now there are some churches that don't baptize that way. So there's the, the Mormon church, for example, doesn't baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They baptize in the name of Jesus. They don't believe in the Trinity if we believe the Trinity. And so that would not be a valid baptism. There's others that just baptize in the name of Jesus. And so again, um, it, it needs to be a particular form, but it is, um, it is a statement of belief that we share. Um, and yet, there's still something missing sometimes in that, in that statement. And so when we get to the sacrament of baptism, it's important to kind of learn what those differentiations are. Some Christian denominations believe baptism is just a sign. It's just a symbol. It doesn't really affect what it signifies. And we believe it actually does what it says it does. And so that's important. That's why some religious denominations don't baptize their babies. Because if you believed that baptism really did something that is restored what was lost, then you would want it for babies, right? I mean, it just kind of makes sense. And so, so that's why, you know, that was a surprise to me when I learned that not everyone believes the same thing about the sacraments that we believe. But we do believe that um, baptism, we accept the baptism of everyone that actually does it in the form and the matter that the Catholic Church does do. Thank you for that question. We'll talk a little bit about that tonight when we talk about um, the person of, of Jesus. And so, so tonight really is the heart of the matter, if you will, because this is really kind of the source and summit of our faith. It is really kind of what it's all about when we're talking about the person of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to cover tonight is I want to cover what does the church teach about Jesus? Who, who is he? And, and what do we believe about him? And why do we believe that? Why did he come? Why did he come in the way that he actually came? And so all of those questions are really good ones, and, and there's really some really good answers um, for all of those things. I think probably, um, just to start, I think we've been talking a lot about the story, right? The story of salvation history. The story of God's never-ending love for his people. Well, I want to make it clear from the very beginning that, that Jesus isn't just a part of the story. He's not just 
a prophet in the story, but he is the story. You know, he is the theme, he is the purpose, he is the goal. Um, he is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, who 2,000 years ago assumed a human nature and became man in order to, you know, reconcile us back to the Father. And so, so I just want to kind of make that a really priority, um, if you will. He is the Word, and, and we've talked about this a little bit, as well, you know, he's the word of God. And so we don't believe that the word of God is a book. We believe the word of God is a person. We're not a religion of the book, we're a religion of the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so if we go back to the creation story, we can remember that, you know, God the Father created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. Let there be the sun and the moon and the plants and the stars and the animals and the fish and the sea. And so this speaking of God created all things. Well, Jesus is the word of God. And so it's this idea that all things are created in and through Christ. And so at creation, the eternal God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was present. God the Father created the heavens and the earth. God the Son spoke the words that created all things. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And so we have in the first paragraph of Genesis, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what we also have in the creation story is kind of this um, trajectory, if you will, of kind of the scheme of importance. We begin with very simple things and we move to the more complex. And the most complex, next to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the creation of man. On day six, we have the Godhead say, let us make man in our image and likeness. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so Genesis 1 tells us who we are. We're made in the image and likeness of God. We are different from the rest of creation. We are the crown of God's creation. We have a memory, an intellect, a will, the capacity to choose. We have freedom, which makes us most like God. And in the very beginning, God gave us the choice. You want to live with me forever? Don't eat of that fruit, right? Don't eat of the fruit of the tree. We have the same choice today. He has told us what it means to be his people. And we have the choice to say yes or to say no. You know, this is, this is where our freedom comes in. And so, so Genesis 1 really is that creation story that tells us, our, gives us our dignity, that we're made like God. And Genesis 2 tells us our purpose. Because in Genesis 2, we have a different creation story in which God places man in the garden and then breathes life into the man. This is where we get that radical integrity of the human person, the body-soul reality, that we're not a body with a soul, we're not a soul inside of a body, we are in soul. There's not an iota of your person that is not holy. And then God the Father puts the man to sleep. Why? Because he said there's something missing in the garden, and that something is you and I, ladies. We had not yet arrived, right? Why? Why is that not good? Because we're made like God who 
And so we couldn't do what really we're meant to do, which is to love. And so God the Father puts the man to sleep because he wants to make it clear that Adam has nothing to do with the creation of Eve. There's no sense of domination in the garden. They're meant to be partners. Eve was meant to be a subject of God's love, just as Adam was, never an object to be used. And so he puts Adam to sleep, and then he takes the rib of Adam and builds up the woman. They're made of the same stuff. They are equal in dignity, but they are not the same. You see, in order to become one, there needs to be a difference. And that's why male and female, he created them. And then God the Father presents the bride to the bridegroom, and Adam is recreated in the creation. That's what love does. Love changes us. It transforms us. God is love. And so human love can help us get a glimpse of the love of God. And then God the Father says that statement that we hear again in Matthew 19. He says, a man shall leave his mother and father, cling to his wife. The two shall become one. And then he proclaims the first command, which is not to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It's to be fruitful and multiply. And so human love is never meant to be just about the two. It's really about becoming fruitful in the And that's really what love is meant to be. It's meant to be fruitful. And so here we have, in Genesis 2, our purpose that we're called to love, to give ourselves in totality to another, and in doing so, have our lives be fruitful. And, and people do that in different ways, and we can talk more about that. Um, but in the garden, and what I want to get across to you is that there was a communion present in the garden. Adam and Eve walked with God. There was peace, a shalom. You know how Jesus always says when he sees the people, peace be with you. He's always offering us his peace. And that's what was present in the garden. They were friends with God. They walked with God. They were in communion. They were naked and unashamed. What does that mean? That means that they saw each other as God sees them, as a gift as what they were meant to be. But then in Genesis 3, we have a huge change. We have a huge change, and it's called in, in theology, and we've seen it on our story of salvation history, we've, we've heard it called the fall, right? And Genesis 3 is really what I like to identify as, as being um, an anatomy of evil. <clears throat> so you have in Genesis 3 a parallel to what evil does to us today. And so Genesis 3, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are worth reading again and again. Genesis 1 and 2, we can never enter into objectively except through the text. That's pretty powerful. That's the word of God, right? That we can never really enter into that objectively except through the texts that are presented to us. Now, Genesis 3, we've got surroundings. Because Genesis what happens in Genesis 3 happens to us on a daily basis. And that's why it's so important for us to ponder this. The first line of Genesis 3 says this, the serpent was the most subtle of all God's creatures. See, that's what evil is. Evil is always subtle. It's not going to announce to you that it's about to ruin your relationship, break up your marriage, and empty your bank account. No, evil often wants to appear to be quite lovely. 
distracted. And it wants to introduce doubt about everything you've always known was true. And that's exactly what the serpent does. What does the serpent say to Eve? Did God say that you can't eat of any of the fruit, the trees of the garden? As if to say, boy, you're God stingy. Instead of what Eve already knew, that he had given her everything that she had received. That he was generous, that he was abundant, that he was merciful, that he was just. And yet, the serpent introduced, did God say that you can't eat of any of the fruit of the trees of the garden? Now, the other interesting thing is if we could read the text in the original language, we would catch that the serpent actually uses the term for the Lord that is actually a reduced term of reverence. If you notice in Genesis 1 and 2, just the text identifies the Lord as the Lord God. The serpent says, did God say? So there's a reduction in reverence. And unfortunately, Eve picks that up. She doesn't say, don't call him God. Call him Lord God, because that's his name. No, she says, well, God didn't say it. It's kind of like, you know, when somebody says to you, are you kidding me? You believe, you believe in the picture. You want to become a Catholic? They don't let a woman right to choose. Are you crazy? They don't let women be priests. What, what are you doing that for? Why would I do that? And we do. I mean, you know, I mean, I've got two masters in theology, and sometimes, you know, I'm, sometimes I feel a little intimidated when people are, I mean, not much, but sometimes. Um, but, you know, that's what evil does. It kind of backs you into a corner. kind of makes you feel smaller than you are. Forget what you know. And so Eve says, well, God didn't say that. She uses the term that reduces the reference for God. So she's already listening more intently to the voice of the world instead of the voice of the Father. She's already turning away from the Lord. She says, well, God didn't say that. God said that we shouldn't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Wrong tree, Eve. That's the tree of life. She gets the tree wrong. And she says, and he said we shouldn't touch it. He said nothing about touching the tree. He said don't eat from it. And then he said that we might die if we eat of it. No, actually, God said, surely you will die. What's my point? My point is that he didn't know God's word. And so my question for us is, do we? Do we know God's word? Or do we just have some vague, subtle sense of God's word? I don't know why he didn't know God's word. I often say my marriage got couples, you know, there must have been a communication problem even in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, Adam got God's word directly, right? I mean, what happened here? Um, but, but see, he didn't know God's word. And what happened when Jesus was tempted in the desert? Now, I know Jesus wrote God's word. He is the word. But it's not like we don't have access to the word, right? And so Jesus knew God's word. When Satan tempted him to turn the stones to bread, he said, this is what the, the word of, the God, of God says. You shall not, you know, live on bread alone, but on the words of God. And so Jesus knew God's word. And so we need to ponder God's word. If we say we believe in Jesus, we should know what he says about marriage, family, and work, and the human person, and love, and sex and money, I mean everything. We, we should know what he says so we can we can follow. 
emotional response, the serpent goes for the juggler and just calls God a liar. You will not die. God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to become like God. Wise. But the crazy thing is that they were already like God. And she already forgot. She was made in the image and likeness of God who was love. And so I bet for the first time, I bet for the first time in the garden, Eve looked at that tree. I bet she never thought to look at that tree before. You know why? Because her God the Father said that was not good for her. And she looked at that tree, and, and in, in the scripture it says, she says, that looks good. <laughs> so it's like she redefines what God said was not good for her to be good. You see that every day in the culture, right? A redefinition of what has always been determined to be good to be evil and what is evil to be good. There's no sense of an absolute truth of goodness. And so she redefines that what God said was not good for her to be good. And then this progressive nature of evil begins in Eve. And this is what happens for all of us. This is why we must guard our senses. It matters what we read, what we watch, what we listen to, who we hang out with. We have to guard our senses. Because if we don't, we're influenced by it. Where does sin begin? Does sin begin in an action? No. It begins... That's why Jesus is always speaking to our hearts. He's always speaking because of the hardness of your hearts. Circumcise your heart. That's what I want. What's your heart? Because that's where sin begins. And so what happens is Eve looks at the, at the tree and she thinks about it. And she ponders it. And then she takes and she eats and she shares it with her spouse because it's never fun to sit alone, right? That's the progressive nature of evil. Adultery doesn't begin in the bedroom or a hotel room. It begins in the chat room. It begins in the boardroom, in the snack room. It begins in the heart. So we have to guard our senses. We have to be attentive to how we live because we become what we do. If we lie, we become a liar. If we commit adultery, we become an adulterer. And so we are a moral agent. What we do, we become. And so this is, this is so important. And so at the instant that they both partook of the fruit, their eyes were opened, but they were blinded to the gift that they were to one another. And the reason we know this, the way we know this, is they automatically cover their organs of communion. And they hide, not just from God, but from one another. They no longer feel safe. They feel like they could become an object of the other person's whatever. And so they cover that aspect, that capacity. And so it's harder now to love. This is the whole deal, you guys. Sin reduces our capacity to love. The more we sin, the more selfish we become, the more stupid we get. Sin incapacitates us to love, because it becomes about an inward movement instead of an outward gaze. And so at the instant of the fall, their eyes are open, they're blinded to the gift, they cover themselves, and then they hide. 
hide from God the Father as if he is going, as if he's a tyrant that the serpent has claimed he is. And God is calling them out in the garden. Where are you? Now God knows exactly where they are, but he's, he's wondering, do you know where you are? To Adam and Eve. And of course, Adam says, well, we hid from you because we heard you. We were afraid. We heard you in the garden. Why were you afraid? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree? And of course, what does Adam do? He blames the woman. The woman you gave me. She gave me. The woman you gave me. So really, he blames God. He was pretty, pretty crazy. And then, of course, God looks at Eve and says, What were you thinking? The serpent made me do it. The devil made me do it. I don't forget that. Um, but then in Genesis 3.15, and I know I've said all of this before, but I, I want you to know this because this is at the root of why Christ came. They misused their freedom. And so Adam and Eve lost in that instant what they were supposed to pass on to all of their project. And so they no longer had it to pass on. And so original sin is not actually a mark, it's actually a lack of original grace and justice. And that's what we're born without. But at that instant, God actually promises the Savior. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will place enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Total enmity, total opposition. The father of lies, who is the serpent, and the woman, who will untie the knot that was tied by Eve. The new Eve, Mary, who will say, yes, be it done unto me according to thy word. I will place enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed, serpent, and the woman's seed. The seed of the woman is who? Jesus, right? It's Jesus. He, the seed of the woman, Jesus, will crush your head, serpent. War has been won. Jesus is God. The serpent's a fallen angel. There really isn't any, you know, this is good, this is good, this is done, right? But he, the serpent, will bruise your heel. There will be some harm done. So in Genesis 3.15, we have the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, they call it, the first gospel proclaimed. The sending of the Son begins in Genesis 3.15. And so this is why Jesus came. Why did he come in this way? Why did he come in this way? Well, if you think about the nature of God, who God is, that God is perfect justice, he is perfect mercy. Well, who actually caused this rift to occur, well, man did. And so God's perfect justice, man has to make reparation. But he did it against an infinite God, so man cannot make the reparation on his own. So in God's perfect mercy, God became man and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so in the incarnation, we have an offering of Jesus Christ for us, and offering a gift of himself to the Father. It's not a punishment of Jesus. Um, it's, it's an offering of himself to the Father for us. I'm going to break my leg on this thing one day. These are the four reasons for the incarnation that the church has always claimed um, over time. I think that they're worth kind of 
looking at a little bit. Now, the first one is to reconcile us back to the Father. And so this is exactly what we were just talking about, right? That there was a, a huge rift, a rift that was caused by this misuse of, of power. And so to reconcile us back to the Father, to restore that original grace and justice that was lost in that original sin. And so this is, this is why Jesus came. Um, and he could only do it as being God himself and fully man. We'll talk a little bit more about that. The second reason is to show his depth of love for us. And we're prepared for this in the Old Testament. You know, we see a couple of stories in the Old Testament, right, that really show us this. And one of them is, is, is what? Does anybody think of a, you know, a story of a father and a son that really reflects for us? Abraham and Isaac. Yeah, Abraham and Isaac. I mean, I don't think there's a time that I hear that story and I just think, how could God ever ask Abraham to do that? You know, and then you immediately think, that's actually what God did for us. When he stayed the hand of Abraham, that was not his will for Abraham to kill his son. Um, human sacrifice is not what, the God, what God wants. Um, but he wants to give us a sense what he did for us willingly, what he does for us out of his love for us. You know, there's a, um, there's a really good book. Um, have you all heard of Matthew Kelly? Have you heard, I know all the Catholics in the room have heard of Matthew Kelly. He's a great speaker and a great author. And he wrote this, his first book that he wrote, I think it's his first book, called, called Rediscover Catholicism. And the first story in that book is just, it's just, you can't put the book down. And I'm going to ruin it for you, so I'm just going to tell you the story because I just think it's so compelling. But it's, it's a story about this, this virus that attacks the world. And it's, it's, it's in every country, it's in every county, it's in every city. And they recognize that the world is going to end if somehow we don't get some clean blood so that we can produce a vaccine to actually save the world. And so they're searching for that one person that has yet to be infected. And they finally find it in a 12-year-old boy. And the doctor comes out of the room, the exam room, he goes, we found it, we found it, we're going to be able to make a vaccine. And everybody's cheering, and, and the parents come in, and they're like, what's going on? And they're like, your son, he's not infected. He's going to be the savior of the world. He's going to help end this thing. And so they're, they're, they're like, well, you know, we've got to prepare him. We've got to... And then they say to his parents, you know, want to say goodbye? And they said, say goodbye? How much blood do you need? <laughs> they said, we need it all. But this is going to save the world. It's going to save the world. Parents are like, Sin doesn't make us more human. 
Jesus rescue. It mars the humanity of the person. And Jesus was the most perfect human that ever lived because he was without sin. He was the way we were supposed to be. And so when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it's not just like, you know, some aggrandizing statement. He actually wants you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect so you can live with him forever. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be saints. And the only folks that are in heaven are saints. Lastly, he wants us to participate in his own divine life. That's why he came. That was the original plan for our lives, to live with God forever. And so the four reasons for the incarnation, I just think that there, there's something you can ponder, take to prayer, um, to reconcile us back to the Father, to think about all of the different stories that really reflect this, that he's, he's done this for us throughout the story of salvation history. Noah's Ark, the story of Egypt, all of the plagues. God was continually trying to bring us back to the Father and preparing us for the sending of the Son, to show his depth of love for us, the story of Abraham, to model holiness, and to participate in his divine life. Who is Jesus? I had really a lot of fun with something today. I always love to kind of talk about the, the, the meaning of names. So I looked up all your names and the meanings of your names. Now, some of you don't, don't have meanings on your names. It doesn't mean there's not a meaning to your name. It just means that I couldn't find it in the book I was looking for. But I thought it was so fun, so I want to share. Does anybody know what Jesus' name means? Yeah. Yeah. What is it? What does it mean? Messiah. What's that? Messiah. Uh, kind of, sort of, um, because Messiah is the Savior, right? That's what Messiah means. So Jesus' name means God saves. And so that's it. So a name should actually accentuate our mission. It should tell us what our mission is. So when you name your children, you should really take care. What do, you, what do you want their mission to be? What do you want their mission to be? What does a name mean? It should actually show their mission. So I'll, I'll, just, I'll just share some of them. Um, Kadeem, firmness, solidity, strength. Nick, a victory of the people. Victory of the people. Erica, ever. Always ruler. Lucas, it's Greek from Lucana. He was a good guy, so you're named after a good guy. Adam. Adam means man. And it's said to be red because they thought about the white man, so the ruddiness of a white man's face. Um, to make. Adam means to make. And you think about how from an Adam Eve came to be, so that was interesting. Homer, pledge. Nestor, wisdom, longevity. Zachary's not here tonight, but it means Yahweh remembers. Oh, is Zachary here? Oh, yeah, you're here. Yahweh remembers. It's beautiful. Zena here? Um, Brian. Brian, Brian's brother is not here tonight. High, noble. Fred, peaceful ruler. Cynthia, woman from Kynthos, from the Greek. Carol, I love carols. Carols means song or hymn. She loves to sing, which I think is beautiful. Christina, Christian, beautiful. 
Uh, Chelsea's not here, a landing place for chalk, which I thought, what does that mean? <laughs> um, hunter, hunter, means hunter. It means hunter, so hunter. Um, Sue, Lily. I know, is that beautiful? Dana, where's my Dana? Dana. Um, God is my church. Wow. Beautiful. Um, Amanda, worthy of love. Uh, David, beloved. Yusef, he will add. Um, let me see. I've got it written all over here. Jennifer, fair, white, and blessed. John, Yahweh is gracious. To be gracious. Alex, hero, warrior. Brett, an inhabitant of Britain. <laughs> Let's see. Okay. There was there were a few that I, they just weren't there. Um, so, see if there's oh Philip, friend, lover, Helen, torch or moon. I thought that was beautiful. Um, and Mary is beloved. So, yeah. it also means bitter. I didn't really want to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Not the Christian meaning, though. So anyway, you know, I mean, etymology is beautiful because words have meaning. And your name has a meaning. And so your name has a mission. And Jesus' mission is to save. So that's the meaning of his saying. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. I'm not going to go through all these again. We're going to read a couple of them, though. Abraham, we already talked about, right? The sacrifice of the son, the love of the father. Now, we did talk about Moses as it relates to the Passover, when Moses went to Egypt, the final plague, the Passover lamb was slain, the people were saved by the blood of the lamb. But when, when God first approached Moses, what was the story? What was the story? Where did he see, first see God? Anybody remember? Where did God appear to Moses? The burning bush, right? And Moses are like, who are you? And God then tells Moses his name. I am who I am. What does that even mean, right? Well, it means that God is telling him who he is. I am being itself. I am the eternal God. I have always been. I will always be. I am the uncreated being. I am who am. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus actually uses this language, and it's language that causes people to fall back. When the soldiers go to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I'm searching for the person of Jesus. And Jesus says, I am he. And the soldiers fall back because of the power of the name, I am. He's claiming to be God. He has the being of God. He is God. When he meets the woman at the well, and he's, he's talking about the fact that, you know, don't you want living water? You're here at this well every day, bringing up this water. And of course, he's talking to a woman who is a, a 
woman of the evening. She's there at 12 noon. Nobody goes to the well at 12 noon because it's so hot. All the other women go early in the morning because it's nice and cool. But she comes at 12 noon so she won't walk into the end of the other women. And she meets Jesus. And he says, don't you want the theme of water? She says, who are you? Are you claiming to be greater than our father Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Again, Jesus is claiming something that is just unbelievable. That he is God. He is God that has come to save us. There are 14 I am statements in the New Testament. Google and look them up. And you can see, you can see what I'm talking about. I want to read Psalm 22, 1 through 31. I don't know if I want to read all of those for you. I think I showed you which ones. So, Nick, can you stand and read this for us? I want you to see if you can find Jesus in this Old Testament psalm. image, if you will, um, 
of the Lord. The other one that we often hear about too is what we call the suffering servant, and that's Isaiah 53, verses 1 through, I think, what did I say? If you're using the Catholic Answer Bible, which you can see, we are on page 896. 897, actually. Chapter 53, verses 1 through 7. Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him, like a shoot from the parched earth. He had no majestic bearing to catch our eye, no beauty to draw us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, knowing pain, like one from whom you turn your face, spurned, and we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds we were healed. We had all gone astray like sheep, all following our own way. But the Lord laid upon him the guilt of us all. Though harshly treated, he submitted and did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter or a sheep silent before shearers, he did not open his mouth. The parallels of that to um, the passion. He didn't say a word when they questioned him. Um, he just allowed like a lamb to be slaughtered. And he, John, what did John say? He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This connection from the Old Testament to the New. Um, and so, so this is when the Jewish people, you know, they, they were very um, familiar with the scriptures, right? And so they, they see the person of Jesus Christ. And the connection starts to be made. And of course, the apostles do the same thing in the gospel stories as well. Now, here's some more Old Testament prophecies that, um, and I do have a handout for you all. If you didn't get a handout, you don't have to write all these things down. But you'll see in, in Isaiah 7, 10 through 14, we have a, a prophecy of the virgin birth that is made. That again, um, the Messiah will be born to a virgin. The Messiah is from the line of David, and this is this was so important, right? That it was from the, the house of David, this particular genealogy, if you will. And so we, we have in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, as well as in Luke's Gospel, a genealogy which makes clear that Jesus is from the house of David. So again, to make these connections um, to the prophecy of the Messiah. We have the location of the birth of the Savior in Micah, the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. That this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Which also, does anybody know the, the meaning of the word Bethlehem? The word meaning of the word Bethlehem. House of bread. House of bread. Oh, nice. That's 
Isn't that amazing? So you know, Jesus, who is you know, bread of life, who's born in a stable, he's born in a trough, which the animals normally feed upon, and he becomes our food. Um, he is born in, in the house of bread. The location of the birth of the Savior, Micah 5.2. Um, and so you would think with so many of these signs, you know, why wasn't he recognized um, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies? Um, and so oftentimes you'll hear people say, biblical scholars, that the New Testament is really found in the Old Testament. We see that the prefigurement of the, of the New Testament in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is also found in the New. So it's fulfilled in the New. And so, you know, both of these testaments are meant to be read together. We don't separate them. They are one book. They are one story. Um, and they tell the story of the Lord. You know, I think it's also important for us to, as we contemplate this mystery of Christ, you know, why do we believe what we believe? We, we have to recognize that this really is a historical event, right? This, this isn't just a story. These are, this is actually something that happened. You know, if you read the Old Testament stories, you'll see that kings are mentioned, pharaohs are mentioned, geographies are mentioned, you know, timing is mentioned. Um, so all of these things that actually, you know, call forth a historical event in time. There are eyewitnesses to this event. These eyewitnesses wrote things down in the Gospels, in the letters. We have non-Christians who, philosophers, Josephus is a big one, um, who, who have written down, you know, some of these stories that have been told uh, from the very beginning. In the Gospels, we have the 11 who witnessed all of this, right? We find it in St. Paul's letter to the Colossians that there were more than 500 witnesses to the resurrection. And so this was not just, you know, a happenstance kind of thing. So scripture itself really reveals for us um, the truth of, of the event of Christ um, and sources outside of scripture as well. And so this is well documented. I don't know if any of you have ever read A Case for Christ by um, Lee Strobel. Um, and he's, he's not a Catholic, he's a Christian, he was an atheist, and he became a Christian when he tried to actually win his wife back from the Christian faith. He was a newspaper detective, if you will, and he was going to prove that the resurrection never occurred. And what he ended up doing is becoming a Christian. And so it's a great story, but he kind of goes through kind of all of these, um, you know, reasons why this couldn't be true, and all of the, he himself proved to not be true. And so, so the big event of Jesus Christ is that he is the God-man. And this is, this is a term that we use um, in Christianity that recognizes that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, assumed a human nature, but he did so without leaving behind an ounce of his divinity. And so God became man. He was both fully man and fully God. You know, when we think about what does it mean to be human, we talk about someone's nature. So as a human person, in my human nature, I have a capacity to do certain things. That's what my nature allows. It actually kind of allows a spectrum of activities, if you will. I'm human, so I can rationalize, I can dance, I can talk, I can learn a language. Um, that makes me human. A bird's nature allows you to fly, right? I don't have a bird's nature, so I can't. And yet my nature 
is not something that can act. My person acts. And so every person has a nature. Every person has a sphere of activity in which they can act. We believe that Jesus had two natures. He was fully human and he was fully divine. And so when he was acting in his humanity, then he was able to do all things human, right? He was like us in all things except sin. He grew up in a family, he drinks wine, he eats food, he hangs out with friends that maybe he shouldn't hang out with, he's tempted in the desert, he cries, he suffers, he gets angry. And in his divinity, when he's in the sphere of his divinity, when he's acting out of his divine nature, we see, see things miraculous, like he's born of a virgin, right? The announcement to Mary, when Mary is told that she is going to be the mother of the Most High, then we're getting a miraculous statement, a statement that can only occur because of the divine. The dream of Joseph validates that, that Mary has not come to be with child because of a betrayal. It is because of the Holy Spirit's action in her life. The visitation to Elizabeth, when Mary finds out she's going to have the Messiah, what does she do? She goes in haste to the hill country. And what does Elizabeth do? She says, at the sound of your voice, the child leapt in my womb. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And so Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, recognizes Mary is the mother of her Lord. The angels at the nativity, they are worshiping. The shepherds are worshiping. Only God is worthy of worship. The prophecies of Simeon and Anna. After Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph do what all good Jews do. They go to offer sacrifice at the temple to present their child to the Lord. And when they do that, they enter and, and they meet up with Simeon who is a prophet that was told by God himself, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And when he sees Jesus, he says, now I can die in peace because my eyes have seen the Savior of the world. And then he says to Mary, with your heart, a sword will pierce. And so he prophesies the great suffering that's going to occur, but he recognized Jesus from the is. Anna is a prophetess in that same temple. She hears all the commotion with Simeon and the child Jesus, and she too validates what Simeon has proclaimed. She's been praising God and um, living in the temple since she lost her husband seven years after they got married, and so she too um, is a great prophetess. The finding of Jesus at the temple, he's lost for three days, and Mary and Jesus, Mary and Joseph come back to the temple to find him, and what does Jesus say? How could you not know that I would be in my father's house? Why did you worry about me? Now, he's saying this to his father, Joseph, right? How could you not know that I would be in my father's house? He's in the temple. And so again, he's proclaiming his divinity. The miracles of Christ are a sign that this is one with power that goes beyond the human. He cures the sick. He makes the blind see. He raises the dead. The baptism of Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, what happens? What do we see when Jesus is baptized? 
see the Holy Spirit. And we hear the voice of God that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so again, a recognition of the divinity of Christ. The transfiguration of Christ. This is when Peter, James, and John are with Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is transfigured before them. He becomes dazzling white. And he's dialoguing with Isaiah and Moses. Elijah and Moses. He's dialoguing with Elijah and Moses. And Peter, James, and John are watching this. And they're stunned. And then when, when everything comes back to normal, Jesus says, and you're not going to tell anybody about this. But again, this is a recognition of the authority and the divinity of Jesus. The ascension into heaven, after Jesus rises from the dead, spends 40 days with the apostles, forming them so that they can go out and proclaim the good news, he ascends in their midst to the Father, on his own power. It's like he's, he's taking off in the air, and he disappears before them. If there is one event in the life of Christ that proves the divinity of Christ is the resurrection, that he overcame sin and death, and he appeared again to hundreds of people in his glorified body. We see that on the road to Emmaus when he's walking alongside the apostles and they don't even recognize him because he's in his glorified body. And then finally they recognize him in the breaking of the and then at Pentecost, we have the beginning of the church. And this is an amazing miracle, right? This is when Jesus said, I have to return to the Father so that I can send you the Spirit who's going to lead you into all truth. Pentecost is the birth of the church, right? And so they, they've all gathered together, and there's a rushing of the wind. And, and fire appears above the heads of people. The crazy thing is, is they, they can understand other people speaking in languages that they themselves have never spoken. And so again, a miracle of the Spirit of God. And so all of these things point to who Jesus Christ is. That he's fully human and fully God. Now the early church councils really, really struggled with how to understand who Jesus was. And so it's important for us to kind of put this in perspective. Christianity was illegal until 312. The first 300 years of the church, most people who stated that they were Christian were martyred for the faith. All the first popes were martyred. All the apostles except for John were martyred, right? I mean, this was, this was, this was a, a huge sign that these people really believed this, right? I mean, it's one thing you know, to kind of follow a fairy tale, but to die for one? You know, half the church did that. And so the council, so, so it's important to kind of put this in perspective. So Christianity becomes legal in 312. The first council of the church is in 325. So Jesus, 33 years old, right? That's 33 AD. Um, you know, he's you know, somewhere in those five years or so. You know, he's got, his, he's got his ministry, his passion, his, his death, his resurrection. And then we've got 300 years later, Christianity finally becomes legal. The first council, after the Acts of the Apostles, we have the Council of Jerusalem about circumcision, but that's really early. The first council is in 325. And here they're trying to figure out 
Who is Jesus? How is he fully human? How is he fully divine? How do we understand this? Because there were some real heretics saying that Jesus wasn't really God. They really stressed his divinity and not his humanity. And so the church really hashed this out. And in 325 is, is when we begin to understand that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father. He is one with the Father. He is, he is as divine as the, as the Father is. There's no delineation here. And this is really where we get our, our first creed, the Nicene Creed. And that creed is then um, confirmed um, with Constantinople and Chalcedon a little bit later, um, in 451, 481. Um, and these are councils of church very early on in which all the bishops came together and talked about, you know, what is it that we believe? You know, how is the Spirit leading us to understand the truth about Christ? And so, um, so these councils really gave to us the creed that we profess every Sunday after the homily. And so, you know, the real question for us is, is not, you know, who anybody else says that Jesus is, but who do we say Jesus is? Now, this is a question that Jesus asked his apostles, you know, who do people say that I am? And who do people say that I am? They, he, didn't, he didn't ask, you know, what do they think of my homily? <laughs> what do they think of my teaching? No, they, he said, who do, who do they say that I am? You know, do they believe that I'm God? Because if we believe that, you know, we need to make a choice, you know, because if that's true, then really we are called in our lives to him, to follow him, to be his disciples. Um, and so, so these are all the things that, you know, that Jesus has been called. And so I think they're beautiful. He's Lord of Lords, he's King of Kings, he's Prince of Peace, he's the Word made flesh, he's the Kingdom of God among us, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So all of those things really help us to come to ponder um, who Jesus really is. Before we have our small groups, um, any questions, any questions or comments about what we've talked about so far? Yeah, that's a lot of information. Yes. You know, I mean, I think, I think Mary, you know, Mary would ponder these things in her heart. So the question was, did, when they presented Jesus at the temple, did they really know who Jesus was? Well, the church is um, kind of very clear that Jesus always knew who he was. And you, you, there's a really great article in your binder, when did Jesus know he was God? Jesus always understood, you know, who he was. Um, and, and Mary and Joseph were really given that information as well. But they were limited, right? They were limited in their, in their kind of grasp of that, you know? But I don't think they ever wandered from, from the continuing miracles um, that continued to validate what they were first told. But I think they had to continue to come to believe and understand that. Because, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, that, that Mary is, is like, you know, how could you let your parents be so worried about this? And her son, you know, I mean, most mothers would have taken the kid but, right? You know, not, not really worried about how would you make our, our parents worry about you? And Jesus was just like, how could you not know that I had to leave my father's house? And so, so he was always cool. He was 12, right? And they didn't, 
you know, they didn't rebuke him at that point, and he went back and was obedient to them. You know, so, um, so Jesus was always clear, but we can't really know the mind of Mary and Joseph that wasn't shared with us. But I, you know, I think some of the things you know that Mary, Mary was so receptive. You know, she's really the perfect disciple, always open to the Word of God from all different areas. You know, Simeon, Anna. The angel, you know, she, she's, that's what, that's what lack of sin does. It allows you to be a child, it allows you to be receptive to the truth. So many of us are resistant, myself included, you know, don't really let, let it kind of come off us yet. We don't know what you're talking about. Mary's always receptive, you know, and Joseph was too. He's a man that was humble, righteous, and all those good things. Um, so, you know, they, they have a better grasp on things, but I, I think it's, it would be difficult but we probably won't know that until we get to heaven. Any other questions? Yes, Master. Take a little break and uh, 
five minutes, and we'll come back and watch that, and then we'll um, have our small group.